not that great. They're not doing so well. But but a little better than South Africa. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 129. This is where we round up the most important tech, digital and innovation highlights from across the African continent. My name is Andy Lemasugu and standing in for my regular co-host Musa Kalenga is good friend of the show, none other than TapSnap founder Vijay Vijendranath. How are you doing, man? Sorry to disappoint you all. I'm here with you today. <laughs> no, it's no disappointment, trust me. It's <laughs> always a pleasure. Obviously sad that Musa's not here, but always fun that you're in the building, bro. Oh, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be here. I mean, some of our listeners might not know that you're a South African citizen with Sri Lankan roots. Uh, and so I have to ask you how you fancy Sri Lanka's chances at the ICC Cricket World Cup. Not that great. They're not doing so well. Yeah, I mean, at the but a little better than South Africa. Listen, um, at the time of this recording, Sri Lanka and South Africa rank below Afghanistan. Yes, uh, ninth and tenth place, respectively. It's not good for these two countries. So whether you're South African today or Sri Lankan today, it's not it's not great today. Yeah, I think either way, the rand exchange rate is still really bad. <laughs> Listen, I'm personally rooting for Afghanistan, despite how. As a Zimbabwean, we have them to thank for Zimbabwe not making it to the World Cup. But I'm, I suppose, 100% behind the West Indies. They're at the top of the the the, the leaderboard right now. I think so. Yeah, but I mean, it's early days. It's early days. It's absolutely early. But I do, uh, I agree with you. Um, I'm hoping the Minnows do well. Afghanistan really are, are actually a major cricketing nation. But because of the war, they haven't um, been able to showcase. But they apparently... Yeah really passionate about their cricket and bangladesh, and bangladesh as well dude right yes, what yes. kind of t- dude they're not looking like bangladesh and i'm not saying that in a derogatory way they just haven't they haven't lived up to the very low expectations we've held their cricketing for, to over the last couple of years and people listening to this especially in somewhere like the us or somewhere somewhere else where cricket's not a, is not a big deal are probably just going why don't Arthur these guys on about listen the icc cricket world cup is on the go and it's a big deal in places like south africa zimbabwe and mm. bangladesh india and pakistan and cool places like that and if you're not with the program get with the program yeah and let them know that for to the americans this is a game that the colonizers played with you before the tea party happened dude so i mean this this predates what baseball yeah predates basketball 17th 18th century and finally the world series will actually mean something absolutely if you guys join cricket Mm. okay well that's the thought for you all our american listeners uh get with the program but we digress uh as we normally do vj a i need to watch you i need to watch you here (laughs) i know i started the cricket how long is this chat five hours no, 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 no. Okay. I'll be trying to keep a tight ship, but uh, it's always fun when you're in the building. Uh, and listen, we've been talking a long time before welcoming uh, a special guest to the show. Uh, Mark Karake uh, is someone I met in uh, in Kigali a couple of years ago. He's joining us via Skype from Nairobi, Kenya. Mark is the founder and executive director of Impact Africa Network. How you doing, Mark? I am good. I guess uh, I'm officially part of the African ecosystem now because i'm on your show on delay <laughs> uh, i remember listening to you know it's funny because the person who turned me on to your show is yeah. some is somebody who i was talking to when we were looking at raising a fund so it was a, a, a dfi uh i guess contact somebody who works at one of the european dfis told me about the african tech roundup and she was like yeah if you're not listening to that you're not with the program so now that i'm on wow I'm on your show, <laughs> wow I'm officially that's fantastic <laughs> 
I actually feel good that someone at a DFI would would be listening to our show because um, it's good to know that uh, this village extends far beyond some of the places people would obviously think people you would be fans of the show. And I'm so glad that someone put you onto the show. And it's been over a year, hasn't it? Because it was Kigali and, and now here we are. What are you doing? Because you say when you were raising a fund in, in past tense, what are you doing right now? What is the uh, Impact Africa Network, Mark? I guess what is Impact Africa Network is a startup studio. Um, and the process by which we got to this strategy was iterative. And the idea from the start, what the problem I was trying to solve is still the same problem I'm, I'm looking to solve right now. And it was a question of how do we activate the process by which you build great African companies. That's, that's, that's the end game. You know, I spent, I don't know, 15 odd years in Silicon Valley and had a front row seat to, to watch great companies be birthed and, and, and grown out there, right? So uh, I, I knew that the opportunity would come to our shores at some point because every single company that I ever looked at, I mostly worked with startups, none of them ever had an African strategy in mind when they put their global addressable market on a, on, a, on, a, on a deck or on a screen Africa was always just this big black nothing and that always made me feel invisible at first and like oh my goodness I'm, uh, I don't have a say in anything here I can't contribute anything to the existing strategy or, or add any value like I'm invisible so but you know over time that that turned into like an opportunity as you kind of mature in your in your career you develop more confidence and you're like okay you know I can have my own agency I can actually uh, move things in the world so the fact that these silicon valley startups never saw africa as as anything as as a market to to go after their whole trajectories win north america and and then maybe europe and then maybe as a third tier look at asia and and that's kind of pretty much all she wrote. Uh, very few companies go beyond those three markets, if you will. Um, so anyway, that's kind of my, that's what I'm so doing. Long, long answer to a short question, I guess. So at some point that tension turns you into a repat because you are originally from Kenya, correct? Right. Born and raised in Nairobi. Yeah. Yeah. Born and raised here. and uh, spent But then Silicon Valley is so just not enough. Uh, at some point you're just like, um, life's dope out here, but uh, you know, home's where it's at, right? Yeah, that's an evolutionary process, right? Uh, when you get there, it's the most exciting. I mean, you, I was starting my career when, you know, it's probably the best place anybody who has an interest in tech business can can build a career. So, but, yeah. you know, over time, you start to kind of, you, you, you've worn the T-shirt, drunk the Kool-Aid, seen a couple of, you know, uh, trends come through. Or, or, or And so you start to say, okay, what's the next phase of my career going to be about? So... And you so know, here I, I we hit are. that point and I was starting to ask big questions, these big metaphysical questions. Uh, where am I going next? Is it is silly? Yeah, so Silicon Valley, after a while, you kind of get over it, I would say. Okay. At least I did. And so here you yeah. are with Impact Africa Network, uh, landing some fancy cosigns, which we'll talk about a little later on. You're podcasting as part of that hustle. Really love to learn what you're learning through doing that, given what we do here with this podcast. And uh, listen, we're going to take full advantage of your presence here to glean insights from your experience and trying to, you know, induct a market relevant hybrid model to, as I see it, reliably create and capture the vast commercial value tied up in what has to be one of the the more vibey. 
uh, regions of our continent as far as digital transformation is concerned. East Africa is obviously a, a big buzzword all over the world as far as Africa specifically is concerned. You, you must know that we've recently updated the format of this show. I mean, we used to highlight several ecosystem happenings before eventually discussing one major topic at length. But now in our in-studio recordings, only three items will be covered. It'll give us a chance to be a little more focused and to deal more thoroughly with the most pertinent issues as we see them. And so today we're tackling three topics and at least one of them is framed with you in mind, Mark. So first we'll be looking at an interesting dynamic happening in South Africa with this new wave of banking startups taking on incumbents. We'll be having a a spy at that. And then of course, we'll be discussing spying for real or is it spying? Who knows? We're talking Huawei. And the question is, are they spying on the African Union as the American government would have us believe? Well, we'll dive into that issue as well. And then finally, is it time for an alternative model around capturing the value within the early stage startup ecosystem in Kenya. Uh, I know that most of your work right now, Mark, centers around what's happening in Nairobi. There are things that you've learned since you've landed on the continent and iterated, as you said, that we can learn from. And we want to talk about all of that. But first, I want to start light. Uh, I'm going to ask you both to just share what you're reading right now. It doesn't have to be tech-related. I'll go first. I just finished a book called Killing Caroline by a a lady named Sarah Jane King. I also had the privilege of interviewing her for a BBC feature. Man, oh man, it's a memoir and a highly provocative read about a lady who was born in South Africa as a mixed-race baby, spirited away to England, And her birth mother returned to South Africa and told everyone she was dead. It's literally a really interesting spin on the more comedic take on being born mixed race in apartheid South Africa that Trevor Noah's put out. Both of them being born a crime. In fact, that's a a phrase she uses in her own book, uh, Killing Caroline. I found that really fascinating. has nothing to do with tech, but as a memoir, pretty challenging as a read, um, but also a a great insight into what it must be to be Sarah Jane King or Caroline, as she was called, before she was killed. So yeah, what are you guys reading? What, What are you reading, Mark? Yeah, I'm actually plodding my way through uh, this book called Pre-Suasion by Robert Cialdini. I think I, I'm not sure I say that right, but uh, it is basically a book that you know covers a revolution way to to influence and persuade. Uh, I come from a I come from a sales background, and I'm always trying to figure out how to improve my communication so that you know I can. Uh, uh, engage people and 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 kind of and move things forward. Um, so it's a very interesting book. Uh, it's got a lot of very cool tips in terms of how you can um, sequence your communications, right? And develop a, a, a very you can. It basically gives you insights on how to be tactical in your communications and also strategic. Some some really cool insights from experiments that have been done across the globe. Um, eye-opening insights. So really good book. I'm actually. I would actually use this more as a as a reference, right, on an ongoing basis. It's 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 more of a reference book than any anything something that you read and then put back on the shelf because you always want to kind of revisit those those tips and tricks and and ideas in terms of how to improve your communication, how okay. to influence and, and persuade folks. So that's what I'm working on right now. Definitely sounds like something I'd like to get into. What are you reading, Vijay? Vijay, by the way. 
puts me onto a lot of cool stuff on WhatsApp. Like uh, I have to thank you publicly because you you put me onto some of the the heat in the streets uh, before I you know I notice it uh, any other place. So it's fantastic. But what are you reading like full length as opposed to you know the stuff that uh, you normally send me, which is articles or really cool sort of in depth deep dives into stuff. Yeah, well, other than the usual tech stuff, um, something interesting um, that really got me going was the book by Michelle Obama. Did you read that book? Uh, but I'm busy reading it, yeah. but I'm I'm going through it, and it's it's actually very interesting because it's a powerful work, not to, just about being a, a black woman in, in America, but even as a president's wife, even as someone as powerful as that, um, gets freely ridiculed and looked down upon. Yeah, for being a black American. Wow. Yeah. yeah, and then she sort of reflects. Now imagine me experiencing this. Now imagine every other Black American who doesn't have any of the status or the money or any of uh, the power or anything. Imagine what they're going through. I mean, she's got the pedigree as well because I mean, of yeah. all the Ivy League mm-hmm. um, degrees, and yet still there's a there's a black tax of being one a woman and, you and know, two I, black. You know, I gotta yeah. I gotta jump in here and just kind of make a comment. So yeah. uh, on this particular book, my own experience. So I have two daughters. One is eleven and twelve. My mm. my twelve year old is a precocious reader. She she reads a lot. And we had borrowed the book from a friend, that particular book, um, Michelle Obama's book, and I was like, Yeah, she should read this. So she started reading it and Dude, she didn't make it past, I think, the first chapter. Hmm. And she she broke down. She came and started having this conversation with me about... Because my, my kids are mixed race. So their mom is, is, is Mexican, uh, Mexican-American. And so she, she wanted to have this very deep conversation about that for the first time ever, right? Wow. Uh, the, the idea that, you know, she doesn't fit in here, you know, because we moved... We, everybody moved here and... Uh, we moved them here to go to school and so on and so forth. So she was like, yeah, I didn't fit in in the States. I don't fit in here. And she just broke down crying. And I was like, what is this coming from? And she was like, yeah, I don't like this book. This book is making me deal with stuff. That- wow. And so, yeah, so she just put that book aside and we're like, okay, let's go back to, to life. So I guess Vijay would ask you, I don't know if you remember, what, what's in the first few chapters of that book that could <laughs> make a mixed race girl break down and, and cry? Um, that, that's, uh, just what I mentioned, um, as a black woman who's, uh, uh, seen as a person of color officially in America, being the president's wife, having all the education in the world still made her look down upon yeah. just because of who she is. Uh, the sad I mean, story of how she grew up with the dad as well. Yeah. And the difficulties, uh, of, of what they went through just because how it works with her is that everything that she experienced is you have to be, what's the word? Proven innocent. Right. Because right. You, uh, because you're always guilty first. Yeah. While everyone else is yeah. uh, innocent unless proven guilty. And I can imagine maybe, and I haven't read the book. Uh, becoming Michelle Obama, my wife's uh, listening to it as an as an audio book. Which, yeah, I'm, I'm totally going to do that once she's done. Um, I, I imagine listening to a book like that and realizing that you can be Michelle Obama and not fit in. Like, who do you have to be? Mm. You know, yeah, to be good enough or to be acceptable or to be just you know. Just, just to be okay, like for for the world to be like, we're glad you're here. You know what I mean? Like, who do you have to be? You can't if you can't be Michelle Obama. Who the heck do you, do you get to be that the world just says you're not? Um, we're okay with you. I don't know if that's it, but um, I love the segment in our show because I think it it does. Before we dive into things, it just reminds people as we wade through the issues um, pertaining to our being African in these times. 
I think it's worth reminding everybody that we're human beings. Uh, in the case of Vijay and Mark, you, your fathers, um, you have complex backgrounds. Your your paths have taken you away from this continent, brought you here again. Um, your lineages lead in, into all sorts of places that that would surprise people, or even with someone like Vijay um, asserting an identity as an African, that that would confuse people. But it's so important for people to understand that. The reason we do this show and the reason we spend the time to have these conversations is because it's loaded being African. It's yeah, loaded yeah. being a person of color in 2019 uh, on this planet. It, you know, the privilege of being able to discuss these fancy books, you know, exactly. You know, puts us really at the top of a pyramid, whether we like to be there or not. Um, Interesting. She mentions yeah. the pyramid. Uh, the Does pyram- she? Uh, there's a mention. Yeah, there's a mention. Of, I think it's, she calls it. Like, it's like a pyramid hmm. where uh, she experienced triple tax. Triple tax is what uh, she's referring to, uh, being a black person, meaning a person of color, mm-hmm. being a woman, and location. If you live in a particular part of America, you you have less access to the good schools, less access. Yeah, by uh, default. By default. So that's the three taxation system she's talking about. And and being, she was at the bottom of that pyramid, so to speak, uh, as most people are. Yeah, uh, growing up like that, and that's that's what she's talking about. And then there's getting to the top of that pyramid because of her achievement and hard work, and obviously. Um, you know, everything that's been invested in her. Yeah. And then obviously, yeah. even at the top of that pyramid, because of her place in the world, because of Barack and yeah. of course in her own right as well. And then to get to the top of that and realize that, what, that's not good enough either. Wow. That's not good enough wow. either. And not just that, that, it's not other people, other presidents telling her that. They respect her a lot. I'm talking about common Americans looking down on her, wow. saying, no, you're not good enough still. You're not one of us either, or you think you're better than us. Mm. Or please, you don't deserve to be up there. Yeah. Black people shouldn't be presidents' wives. Yeah. Or presidents. Yeah, I mean, oh now, my now word, that that's deep. About this. And they deny a womanhood as well. <laughs> oh uh, my f- word. A femininity. Mm. Because someone's saying, no, she can't be. This is not how a woman looks like. That's some of the critics would tell her. Yeah. A Serena, real woman Serena, doesn't. I mean, uh, Serena, Serena Williams. Yeah, yeah, Serena Williams. A woman doesn't carry herself like this. A woman isn't that powerful. She doesn't have thighs yeah. that big. Come yes, down. or muscles or biceps as yeah. strong as that. Or. Yeah. Shouldn't be serving at that speed. Okay, exactly. Wow. Yeah. So imagine South African kids, uh, what Custis One is going through. Levels, guys, levels. You know what, guys, listen, I have to rope us in now. I have to reel us in because we have a show to do. I'm glad I've let us go uh, down this rabbit hole because I think it's part of our experience. So, yeah. Uh, three books check them out don't I don't know tell us what you think uh, my pick Killing Caroline by Sarah Jane King your pick uh, Mark Persuasion by Charles Cialdini fantastic and finally of course Becoming by Michelle Obama let us know what you think of those books and hit us up at African Roundup on Instagram or Twitter hit us up on Facebook Facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup, or of course, drop us an email via hello at africantechroundup.com. So without any further ado, Vijay, I want you to help us set up the very first question here. What is the deal with this new wave of banking in South Africa? So someone on the outside who even wonders, hey, is there a new thing happening in banking in South Africa? Heck yes. Welcome to it. Um, But yeah. Give us a sense of what's going on here in a new way and perhaps overdue by many people's uh, sense of things. It's two waves of banking, two waves, okay? One being banking that's just helping uh, existing banking customers easier. Okay. Uh, less retail access, meaning you don't have to go into a branch. Make it more digital, make it more funky, make it more interesting. 
banking that's not just banking anymore it's combined with mobile okay. combined with other stuff that's like discovery banking discovery banking is just bringing something new to people who already have access to banking actually let's just perch here for a little bit because yeah. i think prior to discovery you have the likes of capitec which i think has been the most disruptive yes. player in that space yes so capitec would have taken on the big four banks um the likes of absa standard bank fnb and uh who would be the standard bank uh, fnb absa absa and nedbank right and nedbank yeah So Capitec comes on the market and basically says everyone you you're being overcharged whoever you're banking with you're being overcharged this is what things should cost and overnight they just take a ton of market share from the big four incumbents mm. and look i mean do they deliver the full range of comfort and benefits that the 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 four, the four have come to be known for no but the vast majority of south africans it would appear don't really care that there isn't an atm around every single corner or aren't checking to see how cool the 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 aircon is in the branches and that's not to say they don't have a high standard for what they expect in terms of in branch or or, or banking service just, um expecting a lot cheaper because banking is just so expensive uh the the analogy is dstv yeah dstv keeps pushing the premium brand and they say hey we're going to add more value for you by giving you more channels the guys like no just give me the channel i want and i'll pay less exactly i love how you sum that up so capitex is like we have what you want yes at far less and the rest of the banks say but we, they don't have this and they don't have that and people are like actually we didn't ask for that right yeah you're just increasing prices you just, just make it cheaper just make it cheaper and more accessible and give me what i what i need and and nothing beyond that and capitex has done an incredible job and now you mentioned discovery which i think is again taking a similar argument but to a perhaps more high end consumer within the same space yeah because it's like discovery saying hey, you know what we haven't done we haven't targeted the crossfit kale eating people aha uh-huh. Because yeah, discovery, by the way, is a highly disruptive um, insurance business yep. that actually came out of you know a bunch of executives who got fed up with you know being at liberty and their ideas not being taken seriously. Eventually, deciding, led by a certain Al Gore, um, is it Al Gore? Al Gore is the inventor of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> This one is a different Gore. <laughs> different Gore. <laughs> That's like. The Gore I am looking for is a certain Adrian Gore. So thanks for that correction. Yeah. <laughs> so Adrian Gore and a bunch of others um leave what was at the time and perhaps continues to be by some measure South Africa's largest life insurer Liberty to start a highly disruptive insurance business called Discovery which has gone on to to become the poster child for South African financial services and how to excel in that space. Yeah. And so they are now a multinational business and they've stopped short up until now of being a bank they've had really innovative ideas around how to to package lifestyle into an insurance offering to turn insurance into less of a grudge purchase and more of something you literally say thank you for and so now they've taken that a step further and said listen we'll bank you in the way your kale eating hyper healthy crossfit super crossfit loving self desires yep and that's It's sort of disruptive in a way because it's combining the existing model mm-hmm. of of discovery points and vitality points and the whole fitness culture and putting it into the banking. I suppose it's actually a very automatic. It wasn't like it's a no-brainer. I, it is actually. When I saw it I was like, "Oh, that's obvious. Yeah. Why not?" Yeah. Yeah. So okay, so that's the first bucket, right? Yeah. So we're talking about a, a bucket of change, a wave of change that's happening in the space of existing banking 
the second one is something a little more novel and specific to South Africa. Correct. And that's the low cost banking, the banking where they're, where it's actually designed for the lower middle income, even lower than that. Yeah. Uh, it's your time bank. Um, what's the other one? I just know there's time bank. Um, or oh, bank zero. Um, and all of this happening in the wake of Impesa coming to South Africa. Yes. And failing. Yes. And that, that made people realize um, people want low-cost banking, but it's not being implemented well because M-Pesa being run on the back of NetBank doesn't quite work. It needs to be its, its own thing. So M-Pesa came here, it, you know, uh, via Vodacom, um, partnering with NetBank, which again is within the market positioned as a sort of, uh, you know, legacy white people brand. Exactly. They were people who were looking for a low-income a uh, really cheap system that's, that that came independently of the big banks. Yeah. And that's where it was. And when Time Bank came along, yeah. the model was the same. You know, you use the ATMs at the at pick and pay. Yeah. yeah. And you and you open and did well. Yeah. So it's just a it became a matter of brand and perception and things like that. This is so interesting. I yeah. Think I what do you reckon? Where can chime in? Um, so M-Pesa as a product is a totally democratized, you know, uh, financial infrastructure, if you will, right? To the extent that you can call it a bank, money transfer, it's, it's, it's very, I would say, ordinary, right? The, the person close, anybody can access it. There is no, there's almost no branding. I guess even its branding is really geared to, towards just the ordinary Kenyan. Mm-hmm. And to hear that their strategy in South Africa was to go, uh, I guess, to start at a higher tier uh, of uh, the social pyramid, if you will, so social economic pyramid. That's a very interesting. Uh, I think that to me just sounds like a bad deal. I'm sure there's a reason why they went that route, but clearly it didn't work out. Um, so, so NetBank, you guys are describing it as a, as a. I guess how would you describe it as a brand? So I buy into everything you know. Vijay said. I think there were mistakes made around its entree to the market. But I also think many assumptions were made about how readily something like that is copy and pasteable to a different market that has a a completely different dynamic around, you know, how people adopt financial services, right? And and really what people seek from financial services providers. And I think that's kind of different. So I think in many respects, M-Pesa was a happy accident in East Africa because it it ended up vibing with what people actually wanted and needed and an actual gap that existed and a perfect fit for that pain point. And so from from that standpoint, you know, there was, I think, a little less thought about how M-Pesa in South Africa was doing the exact same thing, right? Where the incumbents were not delivering on things that people demanded and we're not getting for whatever reason. And the truth is here, for many years, the leading South African banks have had an effective monopoly on on banking in a way that's probably not true in, frankly, anywhere else in the world. And so their thinking is anything we put out, the people will, will lap up at our pace on our terms. And so that was, I think, the guiding notion that said, listen, Vodacom, we have, you know, strategic partnerships with Safaricom. We have access to this IP. We can bring it here easily. We can sign some MOUs with some key banks and we can get this thing going. And that's just not how the world works anymore. No, no. And it's just come down to price as well. Uh, Remember, M-Pesa running on top of NetBank was a lot more expensive than how M-Pesa was in Nairobi. Yeah. Right? Mm. Because it was not running as a singular system. It's running on top of of stuff. It's like 
I, I can only buy this trailer if I bought the car. Yeah. No, I just want the trailer that works on its own. So that's the difference. What was the implementation? So did you have to have a net bank account? To Correct. What Correct. Was so basically, that's already in exclusion right there. You have to have a net bank um, access, which means you have to have the usual access to the banking infrastructure where people who do don't sense. need M-Pesa. And it's similar with FNB wow. and it's similar with FNB and PayPal, for example. Um, for a very long time, uh, I think it's changed now definitely. The only way you could transact via PayPal was if you were an FNB client. Yes. And so the thinking was basically, and I think one of the other big sales was like, this was going to preempt an amazing remittance offering because, I mean, South Africa's got this massive um, immigrant population. And this was going to sort of foreshadow a, an amazing opportunity to go into remittances because this unique a partnership that NetBank would have was going to set them up to basically provide, you know, services in that regard and sort of upset, you know, Western unions and and uh, uh, Rennies who were sort of running that that sort of retail vibe at the time. And as it turned out, no, no one cared for the way it was packaged. And research that we covered here on the show via experts who've, you know, done PhDs on on why it appears South Africans are reluctant to ad- adopt mobile money, found even cultural hindrances yep. to the notion that, mm. you know, let me put it this way. There's a reason, for example, broker networks are still a big way insurers sell into low-end markets or emerging markets in, in South Africa. And that's just because of how people are socialized, the stock fell or the right. sort of co-op system that people are socialized in and the way word of mouth gets around about what to what's worth investing in and what's safe to do and what's not to do. And so when you compare that with a much lesser offering like Pick and Pay or ShopRite or, the, or places like that, offering people a money exchange system that forces you to be in a physical place to, to put money in and receive it, you realize why something like that would would thrive and something like Impesa would fail despite the hype. Again, talking about analogies, it reminds me of seeing a fancy soul food restaurant in Denmark, right? The idea that it's a fancy soul food restaurant, only the <laughs> highly wealthy, very, very wealthy uh, white Danish people were eating at that restaurant, which defeats the purpose of what soul food was in America. Yeah. So now you're, right. you're repackaging that there. Obviously, the same people are not using it. So if they said, but why are poorer people not eating our food? Because you repackaged it as a fancy system. Do you know what's interesting about that? I think there have been historically successful attempts to to take brands that are positioned elsewhere as entry level yeah. and sell them here as high end. So for example, how Zara is positioned in South Africa. It's supposed to be high end here. Yeah. There's a lot of that kind of thinking, legacy thinking in in the people who actually have the power to bring brands to the to the continent of certain markets, which is, you know, if something works over there, we can copy and paste it over here. And it was really embarrassing um, for Vodacom and uh, Nedbank to discover that, no, it doesn't quite work that way. What you're talking about here, when we talk about this new wave taking hold, Time Bank, by some uh, estimates, reaching 400,000 customers by the end of last month, adding 100,000 plus new customers in a single month, which is the month of May. You've got, of course, you know, all these banks bringing the notion of a zero fee account, Capitec cutting its fees, forcing the likes of Nedbank and FNB to do the same. The Standard Bank now trying to innovate by launching a new account, firing something like 3,000 workers. 100 branches closing. Shrinking their branch network wow. down. This has all happened in the last three months. Yeah, because the, the customers that need 
the branches yeah. are, are digitally savvy. Uh-huh. While they introduced a four-end-a-month model, which is the new stand bank, mm-hmm. where the branches are required, which is in the townships. Exactly. So that's what they're doing. So if you live in Santon, you don't need stand bank branch. Absolutely. If you live in Tipslot, there's a bank there for you because they need that. Absolutely. And they can open a four-end-a-month account. But here's, here's the key. The reason why Time Bank and these kind of uh, banking do well is the prepaid model. Yeah. You pay as you go. The whole idea mm. of monthly subscription is a complete misnomer in the African culture. Yeah. Why would I need a subscription? It's a bank. I just want to pay when I need it. And that's why it's taking off. Mm. If Standard Bank made the existing account as it is without a monthly subscription fee, they would add so much more, but they're still stuck on the subscription fee. Let me ask you guys a question. Go so, ahead. so when you say pay as you go, what would that? What does that look like? I, I pay when I do what? Like a transaction like, like fee? When like when you had an MTN account, um, you only pay when you make a call. Uh, but if you've been asked right. to pay a monthly fee to get on contract and on top of that pay when you need it, it's too so expensive and it's silly. Yeah. So if you if you could pay as you go, meaning only when you put your card in and you withdraw money or you pay somebody that you actually pay to use, it's a lot more uh, becoming to get people on board. Yeah. The yeah. subscription fee right. is right. one of the, uh, the indicators in the, in the one of the economic study done. Subscription subscription fees is the difference between the financially inclusive versus the exclusive. The African psyche is uh, is very geared towards this notion of utility, right? So yeah, yes, I, I should only be billed or spend money when I'm actually getting some value back, right? In, yeah. At that point in time, it's the immediacy of it all, right? Right. Whereas I've heard banking executives at the highest level in South Africa behind closed doors describe their right to that sort of income as their birthright. Right. This Mm. attitude that, listen, there would be no banking network if it wasn't for us. We built the infrastructure. We put the hard yards to break the ground and and literally brick by brick, put up branches and create this amazing network. We'll be damned if people are just going to walk in here and demand, you know, that we don't recoup you know, based on the infrastructure we've put out. And it's actually kind of same thinking behind many of the, you know, the mobile networks and how they think about over-the-top services, mm-hmm. right? right? And right. and it's fundamentally, you know, missing the point about how the internet works as a democratization platform. Mm-hmm. The internet first, and of course, the way technology every year exponentially enables new and profound ways to to deliver value without necessarily doing what was done before. I mean, subscription model can work in other areas. Yeah. Um, lease agreements for a car, van, things like that, instead of getting a loan. But a subscription model for banking, for your phone. But this was the free money that they loved. This was the high margin revenue. Yeah, because it's nothing. Literally it's, it's, nothing it's nothing money. They're making it for nothing. Absolutely. So, of course, that's the revenue mm, they're going to miss the most. Yeah. Yes, yes it's rent collecting. It's a similar to... ICASA's uh, fees between mobile networks, there's a fee. that Interconnection fees. Yeah. So ICASA, of course, being the regula- the, the mobile telco. Regulator. I yeah. suppose communications. Regulator. Regulator. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Communications mm-hmm. regulator in South Africa. And the, the fees they charge various networks mm-hmm. to connect with each other. Yes. That has no bearing on the actual yes. sort of overhead around doing so. Exactly. That should be free. That should be done automatically. But instead, Or the cost of SMS, it virtually costs those networks nothing. Exactly. So it's laughable to find out empty and says, if you use, you know, WhatsApp, you're going to charge you 12 Rand for the data or something. Yeah. Because it's like, like as you're trying to punish us or something. Yeah. 
What we've done in just exploring the whole notion of this new wave of banking in South Africa is is basically explore the perhaps unfair advantage incumbents continue to have in South Africa, the pressure they're under to innovate in the light of new players who aren't playing to the same rules, quote unquote. Of course, they're regulated, but they're not playing to the same constraints. They're not encumbered with massive overheads or, you know, massive infrastructure. They're not stuck with massive staff complements that now need to be either let go or redeployed. And then there's also this interesting question of how's the internet going to keep on you know, disrupting the status quo. Because just a couple of years ago, Capitech was this massive disruptor. Mm. And now they're suddenly on the back foot because of competitors like Time Bank. The traditional big four banks or big five banks hold, I think, five million yeah. of the people. And there's 45 more million people in South Africa yeah. who are unbanked. So Time Bank and all these yeah, guys so are going to take yeah, those guys. Interesting. Yeah, That's the on-demand service. It's unserved market, right? Yeah. Correct, correct. Just from an outsider's perspective, right? Yeah. So, so Time Bank... Describe it for me. How how does it operate? What's the user experience? Think of it what as MTN. It? How does MTN work as a prepaid model? Right? You buy your prepaid SIM card. You put your punch your right. key in and you're in your little code. And then you get access to uh, data, right? Or, or, or airtime. Mm-hmm. So what they've done is they put, mm-hmm. put in these kiosks in pick and pay all over the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and there mm-hmm. you can either open up your account using your, your ID or you taking sending a picture. And you can transact everything through pick and pay. Pick and pay is now the bank providing providing you with the access to the money to transact. And like prepaid models, there's no transact. There's no monthly fees. There's no weird um, you 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 put your money in our account, but you haven't used it. Fee. Yeah, it's like kind of like Amazon turning uh, an existing retail network like Whole Foods into essentially part of its yeah <laughs> its, branches. It's, yeah. its branches. Yeah. So is is there a peer to peer Transactions with this thing? Can I send VJ money if we're on the network? Yes. Or? Yeah, they do, and then and then you pay for that because you're paying across banks. So listen, no documents. Right. One of the fastest onboarding processes of any bank in the world. This I'm talking Time Bank now. No monthly fees. Right. You've got free day to day banking transactions, and then really low charges for other transactions. So whether you're sending money to someone else or receiving it far lower than anyone is 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 willing to service you you know at this point anyway you've got like a really interesting reward systems that haven't existed prior that incentivize your staying with that network and improve retention and this to a market that hasn't even been sold on the thought that banking is for them because that's the other side of things right where it's like banking has always been a class privilege yes. in South Africa. And in fact, you might be asking why aren't people, more more people moving to Capitec? Why don't more people open Time Bank? It's the financial in- inclusion model that's still in place. People with those kind of accounts like Stand Bank, FNB, etc. get access to better interest rates when they buy a car, a house, um, big purchases that people with Time Bank don't do. Yeah. So they don't need that. But, Question for you but guys. if you're buying a house, for you, guys on this. you need to have an FNB account. Because your credit rating is based on those banks. Can you pay for things at like transactions, like at a store? Can you 
So I can transfer money to people. Can I make payments? Can I purchase stuff with it? There are bank or, in every in every sense bank. of the word. Bank. I mean, if you want to buy toilet paper to wipe the ass of the guy with the FNB account, you do it. You can do. It. You can do. It. Look, we're not talking. And what do you? How do I? How do I do that transaction? Do I have? Do they give me a card? Do yes. They give me, yes. You get a bank card. You get a time debit card. Everything and a normal bank would provide you in order to interact with right. the current. So basically, this is this is just yeah. M-Pesa without the mobile. So here's the thing about M-Pesa. In a market like South Africa, what it doesn't do well is play as nicely with the incumbent. So think about it. If you're a, a, a vendor in South Africa, a, a solution like M-Pesa doesn't actually answer for a lot of the pain points a vendor goes through in terms of receiving, receipting, invoicing. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? It's a great peer-to-peer tool and it's a great peer-to-peer platform. It wasn't designed with the sort of existing commercial uh, uh, environment in mind. So let, me, so let me tell you how I use M-Pesa. Yeah. I use M-Pesa as my financial, as my wallet. Yes. Like I, I, everything I pay with M-Pesa, including, you know, uh, Taxify, including toilet paper, including sending money to my, when any service, restaurants, food, everything. That's how I use M-Pesa. M-Pesa essentially is a, is a bank for a lot of people, right? It's just the backstop. It's your wallet in essence. In South Africa, they try to make M-Pesa a payment platform rather than a bank, which is also part of the failure. People live on this platform. You know, they use it as their financial basic uh, backstop. It's, it's, it's their bank in a very real sense. So you can only have 100,000 shillings limit, which is about $1,000 on, on, on the infrastructure, or I guess in your, in your M-Pesa wallet at any one point in time. So that kind of limits its you know, capacity to actually be a, a banking backstop. Um, and it's interesting. I w- this is exactly what I'm yeah. trying to say, which is, so when I say South Africa's financial services regime is at an advanced stage, I'm saying the limitation that you just said there in the context of South Africa is a massive deal because I feel like M-Pesa is primarily designed as a peer-to-peer exchange of value. Yes, it's being used in other ways that it wasn't designed for, but in South Africa, even if you're a micro vendor, especially if you're like part of the tax system and you start to employ people, and I'm not saying that you don't have a huge informal sort of business network in South Africa. Of course you do. If you're going to be a part of the formal economy in South Africa, you can't do it using a platform like M-Pesa. You do but, so need is, a banking so solution. Today, you can actually do both. You can actually serve both markets. So, for example, I have a bank account that I can transfer. I can pay my rent into my landlord's bank account through M-Pesa, right? So it's it's. This is exactly what I'm saying now, but you're talking about a bank. There's a bank is what my my point is. At some point, you basically, in order to start to do, I want to call them high level sort of commercial activity, higher level commercial activity that goes beyond being a user trying to pay for something. At some point, whether you're a merchant or you're dealing with merchants, you're going to need a banking system. Am I right? That goes yeah, sure. beyond what what M-Pesa allows you to do. Correct. Right. What I'm what I'm trying to do here is compare what Time Bank is and what M-Pesa is. And I'm trying to wrap my head around this Time Bank thing. This is very interesting, and I'm trying to say, okay, how is it different or similar to what M-Pesa is from an experiential standpoint for us? Right. Um, and that's what that's what I'm trying to wrap my head around. So Time Bank, you have this network of vendors that pick and pay, right? Or or, or places where you can open an account, you can 
how do I put money into my account? Do I have to physically go to pick and pay? Or how does that how does that work? In South Africa, you have a whole set of different issues. For starters, okay. Time Bank enters a, a market where there are many, many ways that aren't Mpesa or mobile money, quote unquote, that allow people to send money to each other, right? Including oh, going okay. to your local shop, right? Going to a counter, putting money down, and sending someone a, a confirmation that says they can pick money up at any shop right at, once you've done that, right? It's an inelegant solution, but it is a massive solution that is well adopted and highly adopted. It has it, it plays into the values or the cultural values South Africans consumer might have around the tactility of cash, the trustworthiness of going to a shop right they've seen their entire life, and the ability for them to put money in a place they feel like they can trust and someone else can go pick up at a place they can equally trust, right? And so I guess what I'm saying is the base here, it's so profoundly different to what what Impesa actually initially started solving for in a place like Kenya. And I'm just using that as one example. You've got banks like FNB that had this e-wallet service. Well, pretty much every bank has since replicated, but they started uh, make, uh, allowing us to be able to withdraw money from an ATM, for example, even if we didn't have our cards with us, as long as you had your phone. They uh, allowed you to start sending money peer-to-peer, -peer, so to send money to somebody who would then approach a an FNB ATM without a card, put in details and uh, request a PIN and receive the money. I'm saying these are all innovations that predate times launched into our market. Right. So I guess what I'm saying is, I suppose what's not sitting well with me is thinking about M-Pesa firstly as something we need here in the way it's needed in, in Kenya and trying to figure out how time is doing that. Plus, I don't know, being a bank. And I'm saying, no, no, no. Banks are necessary here in a way that might not be necessary in East Africa or in, in Kenya. And I'm saying time bank is essentially I suppose borrowing best of breed from the like of an Impesa, borrowing best of breed from existing incumbents, and then targeting a demographic that in South Africa never thought of themselves as a, a bankable person. Yeah. Don't forget the hurdles. Um, yeah. Photocom. Yeah. People don't want to you know, get a Photocom account or something. Yeah. They just want yeah. to go in and get an account. What I'm hearing, and I'll just close with this, Time Bank basically is what Mpesa is now for, for Kenya in terms of where it has evolved to become. It, that's what I'm hearing, right? It's got all these, you've got this backstop as a bank and, and so on and so forth. But Mpesa, obviously, when it started, was purely a peer-to-peer -peer play, but now it's got it's running on top of bank accounts and so on and so forth. So it's just interesting to see how different markets evolve and how we solve, because essentially you're solving the same utility problem for consumers, right? They want easy access, they want no fees, they want just something that fits seamlessly into their lives uh, without all these kind of heavy overheads that the traditional incumbents have. And it sounds like Time Bank have kind of, you know, uh, identified, a, 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 I guess, a niche for themselves that nobody was paying attention to. Very, very interesting. I, I just I think suppose how different solutions in different markets are solving the same problem, maybe from a different angle. It's just so cool to, th to, to, to think about that. You also have to take into account the differences in regulatory frameworks um, from country to country. It's not so much that Time Bank is this new revolutionary thing that's never been seen before and this massive improvement on what it was or is. It's the idea that South Africa's financial inclusion demands, if, you know, if you're going to play into that direction, like the demands here are different. 
right? And not necessarily because the people are different or deserve different or inherently aspire to different. It's just that the nature of this market, the psyche of its consumers, the way new products and new services interact or don't with new with existing ones, I think it's just an interesting mix. So that's why I, I want to labor the fact that this is a new wave for South Africa within this context. And you could find that Impesa has been for Kenya this, I don't know, two, three years prior before this happened. It's just in the context of, say, being a Spaza shop owner, which is like a little shop owner on the side of the street. Time Bank is literally putting that person in a really good position to be part of the mainstream economy relative to where we were before Time Bank's entry to the market, if you understand what I'm saying. So from a financial yeah. inclusion standpoint, yep. Uh, fascinating discussion, but let's move on to the question of whether or not Huawei is tapping the African Union. Well, accusations uh, have, um, I suppose, been swirling for a while now. Apparently, for five years at least, the Chinese government has been spying on communications being made at the African Union. Direct allegations that Huawei, as this massive corporation that has become arguably the most important partner to the mobile networks that they've sort of grown across the continent as a preferred partner to organizations like the AU and key governments across the continent. Uh, we're talking about accusations being leveled directly at the organization at the highest level at systematically using its position to assist China to spy on the African continent. America, of course, saying they've been spying on us and we're not interested in having them in here anymore. In the context of everything else, you know, Factoring in everything Trump has said, the think pieces around, well, maybe China might retaliate, Apple might be might be nipped in the bud in, in China as a result of this whole thing, the whole idea of this ongoing trade war, this quote-unquote millennial cold war that people are calling what's going on between the US and China right now. What do you guys make of this allegation? What are your thoughts of Huawei? What are your thoughts of this whole thing? Yeah, I, I got to say, man, I mean... First of all, is the way China basically operates, right, is any big corporation or any entity actually is just an extension of, of the government, right? That's just kind of the, the culture that they have over there in a sense. Ooh, right? shots fired. So Alibaba, China, yeah. Chinese government, Huawei, Chinese government. Is that how you see it? ZTE, it's Chinese extension. government? It's, it's, it's basically, basically the, way, the way it works over there, man. It's okay. Like if you hit a certain level of scale, you have to kind of... Uh, and if the government needs something done, you're basically an extension, an extension, an appendage, if you will, right? You have to play nice with the government, and if they need something done, you just basically be co-opted into the state apparatus, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you look at that's not different than any major state actor, right? In in a lot of ways, you know, uh, obviously Apple fought back the the advances of the American government when they were talking about. Uh, they wanted them to give up the encryption uh, for the FBI had this case against them and they kind of fought that back. And that, that was, if you look historically, you have to wonder how many private entities or corporations, you know, played nice with the CIA. So, I mean, this is nothing new, I would say. I mean, it's, it's nationalism uh, writ large. And so I would say, if, I guess the question I'd have for you guys is, if the Chinese government can actually listen in to the African Union conversations, why would they not do that? In the, the context of the world, everyone spies on everyone. So the Americans are like, hey, only we can spy. Why are you spying? And that's basically the story. Um, any 
platform or system that is interconnected worldwide feeds into either CIA FBI um tapping systems for homeland security for for to make sure the Americans are secure that there's no threats on that side of the world they have to do it the Chinese have to do it the Russians have to do it Mossad MI6 and I suppose the UK, they have to do it Mossad have to do it from a it, it it's it is being done it's been being they know done that for they just don't want time, american yeah. data they just don't want american data falling in the hands of the chinese data which might lead back to um, and i think maybe this is the pragmatic thinking at the au where leaders there have decided to to reaffirm their ties with you know uh, with huawei saying you know basically despite what's going on here you guys remain a partner of choice for us some are seeing that as a proxy for the way africa collectively is voting for you know partnering with the east as opposed to the west and 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 i think people have also seen this entire thing as a proxy for essentially what happened in the cold war where communism and democracy became a proxy for you know voting for a new free world quote unquote led by the US versus a dangerous red world led by Stalin you know and it's like look maybe we're being forced into binary thinking around this issue what do you think is the biggest oversimplification around this mark so what is the alternative right what does a african union have as an alternative what's the other option it's not like they had a marketplace with two or three players saying hey here's so and so who's going to offer you this infrastructure i mean what what would they do so huawei has been at the, he's at the table they've been at the table for a long time so it's just business as usual this being characterized as you know a vote for the chinese i guess side of the equation is super oversimplification these folks have been out here for a minute and it's just basically you would say maybe when you know the cold war the old cold war it was more philosophical or at least maybe um ideological uh than an actual infrastructure thing where you actually make a decision and make something happen right away. So I don't know. I I think it's it's of a simplification from that standpoint from from my in my humble opinion. I like that point you're making in that w- this is a lot more than just an ideological option the world is being offered here because by some count Huawei has built half of the 4G networks on the continent and nearly all the 2G and 3G networks on the continent. One of the issues coming to bear here is this idea of 5G and all this and everything this is going to do to create sort of uh, digital advantages for countries that come online first and uh, and start to surf the the internet in 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 wizier ways and even that I believe is hype that's going to help sell the very networks that these big companies are looking to to build but on some level this is the new space race which is you know are they building an atomic bomb over there are they you know what i mean what are they going to do when they get to the moon right. you know what i mean how many satellites do they have up there and and really at the end of the day you know, i suppose you're pointing us to a very big difference between what happened in the cold war and what's happening here which is you have huawei embedded in essentially everything that's set us up for the quote unquote mobile transformation that africa's currently on right now never mind being in our pockets you know what i mean Uh, I mean right. it's, it's you know it's easy to miss the the obvious need for us to be pragmatic about what what's good for us in this whole in this whole conversation not to say Huawei is good for us I'm just saying like there are pragmatic considerations to be made so and the other thing is this is there like a real viable we can switch it on tomorrow alternative only thing we can do that's not tapped on spied on are smoke signals 
you can just <laughs> tell you your mother can say andele dinner's ready and then she will just flap the what about those doves that oh, the doves or the, the peas doves the unless peace unless they not doves. poisoned or something carrier pigeons carrier pigeons as long as they don't carry a, a virus carriers oh, but oh my word yeah yeah other things to consider here um the biggest smartphone manufacturer on the continent well i suppose the biggest brand is 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 transion and their brand of smartphones techno and others the largest music streaming service on the continent right now boomplay also owned by or partly owned by transion a chinese company and then you have to ask when you start to look back at what put those companies in position to claim such dominance on our continent where was everyone else when they were doing what's necessary you know to set themselves up for commercial value extraction exactly or value creation on the exactly. continent and why is everyone starting to come now on some listen those guys are bad for you um you know it's it's i think it's a little complex and it's 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 really tempting to be you know africa would be a lot better off if everyone was you know apple users uh, and not all these other things which i have a hard time arguing against sometimes but again pragmatic considerations What are you going to do? Like what are your alternatives? Are you going to like turn off your right. is Cisco going to suddenly be I don't know. What are we going to do? The whole point of this war is that they're saying, "Hey, we want access to that data. We don't want the data going to China. It should sit with us." And that's essentially it. To be drawn into an ideological or whatever you want to call it battle between China and the US is you know, <laughs> Africa is not a proxy for any of that. Man. Yeah, it's I mean, none of our that's business. That's a fast stretch. That's a stretch, you know. It's obvious that China has designs on Africa and those designs are not about necessarily improving the average person's well-being per se it's about China's kind of uh vision of what what they what's good for them it's in their best interest of their citizens and and their plans so let's let's be real about that too i mean the the reality of the situation is in Africa we've always been um waiting to be picked off if you will mm-hmm. or that's that's our history right so we had the european powers come here the last century china's china sees this as its its opportunity to actually uh do its thing in africa and extract what it needs to extract to continue to 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 uh to to expand its um i guess uh hegemony around the world or or economy or whatever matters to them however they see that but they see africa as a massive uh opportunity and so uh for them for them for themselves and and to the extent that it will benefit people on the ground okay that's good too and good pr and actually makes it sustainable in some sense but let's let's be clear about what this is this is about it's about uh the chinese um interests uh first uh and then maybe the the common african then maybe the how maybe you would call them the the 1% in africa or the africa's leaders Uh, current leaders who are making those deals maybe maybe second or third mm-hmm. and then the common person in Africa will will benefit kind of as a as part of the course if you will but they're not they're nowhere near the top of the consideration for for the for the benefits that all these uh, arrangements are are portending to meanwhile google digging up the continent laying fiber meanwhile facebook free basics meanwhile you know ibm you know cozying up to to local governments as you know we'll help you do xyz we'll help you eradicate tb and overnight becoming the de facto data backbone for 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 countries that couldn't afford to buy them in um and therefore like 
I, basically, I'm just co-signing everything you said. I'm not saying everyone should leave. I'm not saying everyone shouldn't be, you know, lobbying and trying to roll up here. It's just the point you bring up, Andela, is is very important. A marketplace is always good for the consumer. So, to the extent that mm. Africa is a consumer here, right, of its of its resources or the beneficiary of all that competition, and that is actually the best situation for us. Absolutely. Let me tell you the truth, because those market dynamics force people to actually start sweetening the deal or doing the right thing, if you will. So that sounds like music to my ears. A market is always a great thing for the consumer. I love how you put that. We need to assume our agency. We need to own it and realize that, you know, it's none of our business how well America and China are getting on. Their issues are not our issues. We've got a massive, beautiful continent to figure out what to do with as we navigate the fourth industrial revolution. And we will do business with whom we see fit on terms that suit our best interests. And and hopefully, you know what I mean, show other people how not to, to make the mistakes, frankly, both America and China have made as they've sort of industrialized and become these digital giants they are today. Maybe we can do it differently. I know this is super idealized, but I think it's also possible. With that said, let's close out our show with a conversation around all things Mark Karake pivoting several times over the last year or so in order to try and solve for what he perceives as perhaps what's not being done adequately or at all to extract early stage startup potential or to groom and set up early stage startup potential for success in Kenya and perhaps ways we've never seen before. What's what's going down there, bruv? Yeah, well, um, pivoting several times. Not several, a few times. <laughs> but uh, I think the notion of... Did I milk that? You know, um, <laughs> You kind of did, Andila. You're good at that stuff. But <laughs> and, and this reminds me of the conversation we're having, where you, you, you were saying that you always felt like this notion that you'd have to pivot suggested that you were clueless and had no business even doing the thing you were trying to do. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, I was confessing to Mark um, on the phone one day um, about you know just how wide. I think this is definitely down to the sort of British colonial education system that I came up in. Uh, the idea that only people who know what they're doing go out and do things. And the, the, the pivot, the pivot is only for people who clearly didn't, you know, count the cost correctly, you know, think it through, <laughs> you know, prepare adequately, um, acquire the necessary skills and knowledge. Pivot is basically code, you know, for, fools. Th- for, fool- <laughs> for that, what happens when you don't know what you're doing and you want to make a story that the world will accept. And it's, so it's like my dad saying, when I was your age, you yeah. were wrong. When things don't go exactly. wrong, we call it failure. <laughs> <laughs> what is this pivot nonsense ah, that's, that's your kids brilliant. are doing? Well, exactly. <laughs> what is this pivot thing? You should know. Yes, what you're if it doing fails, you fail. Say you so, fail. So you know, it's interesting because I. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, anyway, so with all that I, confessed, um, all that confessed, I, was, I, was, I became, I, I was, I was raised as a professional in Silicon Valley. So pivoting is is very much part of the, yeah. the the ethos there. Trying you know? is winning. Uh, Trying is winning. No idea that is birthed fully formed. There's nothing like that. <laughs> You know, if you're, especially in innovation, right? Um, the only things that are, full, the only fully formed ideas are, are, are culture. So those are things that, <laughs> looking backwards, right? So in any case, um, yeah, so I guess I have iterated my model three times uh, since arriving uh, here. With the thesis I came with was the notion that 
you know, local founders were not getting a seat at the table when it came to funding uh, at the seed stage in, in East Africa. So there was this whole, this, this whole conversation that's still going on right now that expert founders were disproportionately getting uh, funded. Uh, and Village Capital did a report on this back in 2017 where they indicated they, they, the report basically demonstrated that 90% or a high percentage of fintech startups in East Africa uh, were, that received funding were expert-led. And <clears throat> when I was starting to evaluate my process to to move back and, and what problem I was trying to solve, that was that was front and center in my mind. I was like, I know we have so much talent. I know we have people who are so capable. Uh, but there's this notion that then we're losing the digital scramble for Africa because we're not getting funded. So I said, okay, I can move back and solve this problem through a seed stage, you know, high touch strategy, right? Where we would identify founders who had already got some traction, but didn't have that next level uh, experience how, how to build an organization. Because once you have traction, now you have to start building the organization, right? You have to start building the team that will scale that thing up. And that is, a not, that is not an obvious thing for most people. Most people haven't done that in their lives, especially in Africa, in East Africa. So, And when I first I met that you, that was this, is your think, this was your thinking. And I remember thinking, oh, here's another repat here to save us. Right. I, did, I didn't think much of your notion. I think I told you rhetorically, I thought you were spot on. But I, I did think that a few months here would would pretty much put you on onto some of the realities okay. that would counter or at least push back on those notions, which they did, right? Right. In a sense, they did, but it's, it's, it's three or three or four things can be true at the same time. It's just a question of are local founders getting funded enough? The answer is no, right? What's the reason why that's the case? Well, it's multifactorial. One is there's obviously a bias, right? Uh, most of the money that's funding startups in Africa is foreign by by kind of default in a, in a very real sense because local capital is still not yet you know clued in or still not comfortable with these ephemeral ideas of software and innovation. Um, so that's still a fact. Uh, the other thing too that I that I learned was okay, local founders in general are not investable. You know, in a, in, a, in an angle that you wouldn't at first glance see. There's a mindset gap. There's this uh, way of thinking around how you build a company that I need to own the whole pie. And there's not this collaborative, I need to get the smartest people on the bus and share equity and, and kind of build this thing, that this thing is bigger than me. So most folks, I can speak for East Africa, come from a business experience where you've been exposed to a, a one-man show type scenario where the founder remains the smartest person in the room for the life of that business. Mm. And so if that's, those are the examples you've seen, that's how you, that's how you, you, you expect your business to mm. run your business life to, to play out. But if you look at the, you know, and these are traditional businesses which are rather simpler, if you will. I mean, you are getting inputs from one uh, air, raw material from one, one entry point into your organization or into your factory or into your warehouse or into your take your pick, and you are turning them over for a profit. So very simple and, 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 and turnkey, if you will. So they didn't need the smartest people in the room to, to do that, right? You just had to find an angle, position yourself in the supply chain or in the value chain somewhere, and that was a business, right? Or start a hotel or whatever. So nothing changed much. Um, it, it wasn't innovative in any real sense of the word. It was business. 
But now, if that's what you've been exposed to, and that's what, how you expect technology businesses to play out, a lot of people are getting a rude awakening because the first thing that people realize is the idea that they had doesn't even have any uptake in the market or people start using it in a very different way or uh, they need to kind of maybe pivot, right? That P word, right? Yeah. And so they don't have all the skills to build a thing uh, or to sell it. If they can build it technologically, they, are not, they don't have the selling skills or they also need to do this thing called marketing. And they also need to do this thing called HR. And it's much more complicated uh, to do than, than most people assume in the beginning. So what you find is that if you have a mindset where you think you, you need to be the smartest person in the room, it's the king versus rich mentality. And we're still very much on the king mindset where, you know, I am not going to let, I'm not going to share my pie with anybody, whether it's an investor or whether it's a co-founder or whether it's an executive on your team that you're trying to bring on. To, to work on this project with you. Uh, that is a big mindset gap when it comes to building innovative uh, businesses. And this they was something you weren't aware game. of as a prevailing culture when you first landed? And, and, and No, because it, it was not obvious, right? So okay. my, my thinking was, so Silicon Valley, this is how you do things. You optimize for talent. And the way you do that is you share equity. And you optimize for capital. And the way you do that is you share equity. So that's kind of the move. Um, and for me, it was obvious that that's how you do things. Mm -hmm. So I, I was like, okay, so if you're somebody serious about building a company, they've put some time and effort and even their own money to, 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 to do something, then they, sh they, and if they are saying that they want to scale that company, then they should kind of know that it will require uh, sharing the pie, if you will, or inviting others to the table is maybe a better way to describe that. Yeah, while people may have had that idea in their mind, pulling the trigger was a whole other thing altogether. Like actually saying, Andile, come and invest in my company and I'll give you X percent and let's have that conversation and so on and so forth. I can think about that, but me actually doing it is a whole other matter, right? Mm -hmm. So the mindset gap was one, one of the things I had not contended with and I had to really kind of, I, I, I learned quickly or maybe not so quickly that my goodness we still have a significant mindset gap in terms of what we're doing with as far as building technology businesses is concerned is that uh, where the podcast the comes in things yeah I, I guess the short answer to that would be yes we need to scale best practices and knowledge of how to build innovative companies mm -hmm. if we're going to actually capture this digital transformation of africa opportunity we all need to get on the same page in terms of how do you sequence the building of an innovative idea. It's been proven and done in Silicon Valley and other ecosystems. Basically, that's what series C, series A, series B, that's what those things signal. They are basically stages by which a company goes through. And within those, within those segments, you can actually say, a company in series A should have these characteristics or should be looking to do th these three or four or five things. So it's a systematic kind of a structuring of how you build a company. So we need to develop our own best practice and our own maybe even nomenclature, if you will. But at the end of the day, we need to kind of define what that is and everybody needs to get on the same page uh, with that. So yeah, so the podcast is about democratizing, disseminating, startup building knowledge uh, and localizing it also. It's not about bringing in Silicon Valley ideas or, or practices, kit and caboodle and inserting them. It's about taking the best out of that and localizing them and working with them to, 
to kind of um, do what we need to do over here uh, in terms of building companies and sequencing that process. I'll tell you why I was really excited when I saw your podcast, because one of the things that grated me when we first met was, I got the hint, and I know you didn't mean this, obviously we've spoken about this uh, off mic before, um, I really got the sense that you were flying in with, listen, I've learned everything there is to know in Silicon Valley. All you guys need is just to let me in and download. And I got that sense and it really grated me. And you didn't say it in so many words, but that was the sense I was I was getting, even though that's not what you were putting out. And what I found with the podcast and starting to listen to you is that I think the podcast embodies what you've just said, which is we need market relevant thinking to what's going to work here, right? There's obviously a lot to learn from places that have come before, but there's also a lot that's problematic about the way things are done, even in a place like Silicon Valley, when you account for some of the waste that you could point to, or, you know, the bias that comes into play, or frankly, the, you know, the, the the willingness to sort of forsake the boring old sort of business business sensibilities that I think should accompany any venture, however risky. And so from that standpoint, it's it's been really fascinating to hear the conversations you have on your podcast and to also just see your rhetoric start to project in a way that doesn't grate me any longer, which is basically a humility to the fact that there's stuff about the continent you don't get until you're here, you know, until you've spent a couple of years sort of um, testing ideas that you think might work from afar. And I want to ask then, given everything you've said and where you started out. I know there was an iteration in the middle, which really we don't have time to discuss. I want to talk about what your model is now. What's the thinking now? Yeah. And not to put you under pressure, yeah. not to iterate that further, but what would you say have yeah. been the, big, the biggest <laughs> learnings out of your press, of you, out of being here, bringing to bear everything you, you brought from over there, yeah. the interactions you're having, the, the hybrid demands that you've identified in everything from raising to financing. Give us a, a, a sort of summarized sense of where you're at in terms of all that. Yeah, so, so first of all, it was this idea of a seed stage funding gap for local founders. Okay, then you run into the mindset issue where people are not ready to absorb capital. They're basically not investable, right? Even if they have something that's very, very interesting. Then the next thing was, okay, maybe we need to kind of help them develop a an investable kind of situation, right? Uh, take a company that's got some traction and kind of put the structures in place and a plan in place and kind of work with them from an accelerator model, if you will. Only to find that, wow, okay, they can't afford to pay for your services and how do you transact, how do you exchange value between a startup that needs that and they know they need that, uh, maybe they suspect they do, they know, maybe it's fully convinced, but especially the ones who have actually been doing it for some time, they realize, oh my God, this is a more harder than I thought. So, but the problem with the accelerator model, the, ex, the, ex, the value exchange doesn't work. I mean, if you look at where, ex, how accelerators work, you know, YC basically is a pass-through for Silicon Valley investors, right? They, 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 that's what they've become right now. And so that they make their money because of the velocity by which they can take in the best founders in the world and pass them through onto uh, the VCs in the Bay Area and the angels and so on and so forth. That's not what we're doing. That requires a certain speed by which you can pass things through for it to actually work. And, and it's just a different situation over there, right? The speed by which companies can grow and the scale at which they can is very different over here. So how do you actually exchange value in an accelerator? So accelerator models just don't 
in my experience, pencil out over here because the, the, the exchange of what you're giving and what, they are, and what they can pay for or how that value exchange just doesn't work. And I was like, okay, my goal was always to build great African companies. So I said, you know what? We're just going to build our own companies. And what we have in Africa is an abundance of young talent that is not getting a shot. So while you could work with somebody who's been building their company for maybe five, six years, they're maybe in their mid-20s or early 30s, that's a different persona. What we, what, what we focus on is on even going much earlier than that and working with folks who are coming out of campus, coming out of uh, college, university, giving them a 12-month internship to work on projects. Uh, we, are, we are a grant and philanthropically funded entity. And the idea here is to create an, an enabling environment for these young folks who are missing this opportunity to work over for 12 months where they're not thinking about I need to go and get a job. I, I, I need to kind of, uh, you know, get an internship that, you know, at a company that, you know, my parents can be, can, can be happy with. So we have, if you look at the people who actually build companies in, in, in Silicon Valley or around the world, they come from middle and upper middle class backgrounds. So they usually have this, quote unquote, bootstrapped situation where they can afford to drop out of Harvard. Our people can't afford to drop out of university here. And then once they get out of university, they have to find a job right away. They need to produce, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so for us, what, what I realized is like, number, we've got a couple of, the advantage we have is this abundance of young talent that's digital native. Put them in an environment, bring that uh, systematic thinking, that experience, and work on vetted viable projects. Because a lot of times, <laughs> a lot of people work on, you know, ill ill-conceived idea. So I have one guy in the, in, the, in, the, in the studio right now who, they took a couple of runs. One, they tried to build a funeral business, right? Because I was like, that's a large market. People die every day. So let's actually build a funeral app. <laughs> I want to I wanna say, they, yeah. I want to say, was well, yeah. this business dead on arrival? <laughs> it was dead on arrival. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Yeah, so it was totally dead on arrival. So anyway, that, so... Young folks who have all the energy and desire and they're like, man, if I build an app, they will come, I promise you. And they do that and then they hit the wall and they do a couple of times and they're like, man, this startup thing is not for me. I didn't go get me a job so I can live. But it's because they're, they're not thinking through the problem. They're not thinking through, okay, when I, what's the, how does somebody buy my service, right? Because they just don't have that acquired experience that you've, that, you know, if you've been working for a while, it just takes time to learn some of this stuff, right? You've seen it enough at different situations. So this, what, they, what this Startup Studio provides is the raw talent and environment, the, 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 the systematic way where you work on the right things, Right? Yeah. And a 12-month runway to actually take these projects and turn them into a viable thing that have traction. Uh, and at the same time, a mindset shift so that these young folks can understand what the mindset that is required to build a company or to, to do a startup. So this sounds uh, like, they, this sounds so like an improvement on some of the things I've seen a, a big name brand in this space on the continent do perhaps not as well as I would have liked. And it definitely sounds like a, a massive improvement, not least because of, I mean, firstly, there's a local involved, the extent to which, you know, you're bringing true sort of Silicon Valley pedigree to bear at grassroots level, a sufficient humility Very about important. what you don't know and what the market can only teach you over time. The, the fact that you've also identified that an early 20-something-year-old or a recent graduate in, on the continent 
relative to a peer on the other side of the world is not in the same place mindset-wise, privilege-wise, in terms of the options they have at their disposal, you know, vis-a-vis how, how soon they need to start to basically produce and start to to bring the family up with them and, and, and things of that nature. You know, this, these are the things that, you know, we've spoken about and I've seen you start to grapple with that have wanted me to have you on the show. And I suppose my only question is, you know, you probably have a cold, hard capitalist listening to this going, cry me a river. You know, how are you paying for this? How does this turn into the cold, hard capitalist return on investment that someone like a Reid Hoffman would talk about on his podcast, you know? Right. So the first thing is you have to break this things up into the different stages and sequences. The fr- what I'm describing is a grant and philanthropically funded capacity building program that you can think about it almost as an extension of education, mm-hmm. right? So people coming out of university, they're not ready to tackle the real world in Africa, right? So what we provide is a capacity building program that has practical application that can create viable startups. Mm-hmm. So we work on projects that can become startups. This is continuation of school, skills development, exposure. That's what this is. So mm-hmm. this is not for the capitalist. Okay. This is for the capitalist who also understands that, you know what, I also got support. I also had privilege. I also had some benefits that I cannot account for that helped me have a, a running start at the opportunity that I pursued. But also we a capitalist who appreciates to- that you can't hack this problem. When you say hack, what do you mean? I mean, there's no shortcut to it. I mean, right now the hacks are, you know what I mean? They're kind of enough repats like you or Ivy League graduates, you know, right. or bankable expats to sort of satisfy the the the, the right. early adoption so let me start, of, so let of let investments me, yeah, so on I the continent. And I'm saying you can't hack Africa truly coming to the party without solving for the no, things so you're let, talking so about. Yeah. So it's taken me 400,000 personal dollars in two years to get to understand exactly what needs to happen. Okay. This for me is not like, oh, I'm gonna parachute in and be this expert uh, external kind of person who's gonna have all the answers. I came to build great African companies and to change the African narrative. I came because we were losing the digital scramble for Africa. And when I was sitting in my apartment in Oakland, California, when I was watching Techstars that was happening in Nairobi and all the people on the panels did not look like me or anybody that I knew in Nairobi, and they were talking about Africa's technology future, I was writhing in my bed because in Silicon Valley, I didn't have a shot. I'm sorry. Like, I had a limit to how far I could go. I had a decent career. I I could have coasted with the rest of my career in the Bay Area. I was in the process of buying a house in West Oakland, which is a 15-minute ride from downtown San Francisco. My kids and I used to go and look at that property as it was being built. It was a brand new condo. It was the location I wanted to actually live in. And Oakland is an amazing city, you know, so I'm a a Bay Area kind of person. And so the point I'm making here is I have made some real sacrifices not to come out here and stunt for people. I came here to do real work. Why? Because I understand the importance of us capturing this moment. You see, once you've been exposed to seeing a company go from zero or just as an idea to changing the world multiple times or changing a market, you can't unsee that. So technology has this ability to transform life, the lived experience, and to create wealth faster than anything ever before, right? It's done that multiple times from the printing press onward. So here we have a situation where if we can capture the moment that is presented to us right now with 
with communications technology, the internet, uh, blockchain, uh, artificial intelligence. There is a window of opportunity here where we have a digital native demographic dividend. Folks who can start to access that opportunity and start to control their destiny financially. And this will separate them from the his history, the hegemony of the African past, where for you to participate, you had to be co-opted into the old school kind of infrastructure of corruption and what we call in Kenya, buonamkuboism, right? Where I'm the guy, so you have to kowtow to me and, and you have to actually, you know, I Pay homage. have to participate Right. Pay you, homage. You, exactly. you need all you need my patronage, basically. Yeah. Exactly. Patronage. And it's all tied into the political infrastructure and that whole thing. And so while people can come out with good intentions for them to survive, a lot of them, you know, you know, they capitulate to this situation because there's no alternative narrative of how you can create, you know, uh, control your destiny. Right. You're not seeing that. But right now we have examples of that. Right? You have, maybe not the best ones, maybe you have Sport Pesa, somebody who's become literally, I think, a billionaire right? <laughs> in the last five years. You have M-Pesa, which, you know, if it was a startup by itself, it would be completely transformational. What are the next three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten transformational companies? And I guarantee you they are coming for sure. The question is, who is going to drive them and what is going to be their mindset? Are they going to have an inclusive mindset? Are they going to have, you know what? We are going to actually transform our society because the, the, the leaders of the next 10, 15 years are going to be business leaders, not political leaders, business leaders. That's happening across the world right now. You can, you can see it. You can sense it. Right. So Africa has this opportunity where the old guard is, is going off stage with the old thinking and the old mindset. Right. And we have this young demographic dividend that's coming on, online with these new technologies that are also coming online. This is a massive opportunity to write a whole entire script where people take charge of their destiny. They create amazing things. They do great work. What I'm trying to capture is that zeitgeist. I'm trying to, because I can see this coming. Listening to you reminds the me of, of, to... of, of chatting with uh, Charles O'Jay of Hyber. And I mean, your thinking is so similar and, and, and quite refreshing, really. And I think it's been important for me to give you an opportunity to unpack the vision in the way you have. There are people who I know struggle, you know, to see the nuance that you and I live every day. You know, I know Vijay as well as a, as a serial entrepreneur, you and your wife, um, both of you have had to live out what it means to start up in Africa. And there's so much oversimplification that I think you are addressing with the work you're doing, Mark. So for the, for the purpose of people who, who, who buy into that, let the people know, like, you're, you're speaking to people who are, st are starting to see things your way. You know what? I'll put it this way. I don't have to prove anything to anybody. By Dang! Mic drop! <laughs> but now you can't say anything because the mic drop. The mic drop. Yeah, but tell me. Well done. There's no, I, mic, I, there's no mic anymore. No mic. <laughs> there's no mic. But anymore. I hear you. I feel you. I think that's exactly it. Because if if you're doing something to prove it to people who are not giving the money and support, and well, yet somehow, and you? somehow <laughs> we have to prove it to them, and you're not supporting me anyway. You're like Quebec and Canada. <laughs> they want to be independent, but still want Canadian money. <laughs> <laughs> Good analogy. I like it. No, I'll take that for an answer. Listen, I mean, we're totally out of time. And uh, I feel like we still haven't even scratched the surface. What we've done so far is really just give people a taste of the vibe you're on. There's no doubt. I I'm sensing the demand before it even starts to flow to our inboxes and, and on social. People are going to want to hear more from you, Mark. So we'll have you back on the show. But in perhaps, you know, 
the couple of seconds we have left before I have to wrap up, what do you want the people to know about what you're up to and why and maybe how they can get involved? And are you investing outside of Kenya? Are you only Kenyan investments? That's a good question, yeah. yeah. So, so we're not doing any investments, right? We're, we're building pipeline for uh, early stage angel type situations, right? So we're building, we're not doing any investing at all. We're but presumably building, this is pipeline you'd want to, to be invested in um, uh, as it matures. Yeah, so it's a startup studio that spits out on the other end ex- more, more seasoned kind of uh, young innovators who have developed a systematic way of thinking about innovation and how you build a company and the thought process and the mindset. And the other thing it spits out is investable, early stage, traction-ready companies, right? That's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, where are we getting our money? So there's a lot of money around the world. There's a lot of money that's interested in innovative ideas to solve problems. I think... The zeitgeist around the world right now is capitalism is broken. The 1% have just expanded their wealth astronomically. And they're looking, people are starting to look to give back and find, you know, entrepreneurship is about solving problems. It's not about just necessarily creating wealth, right? So this is entrepreneurship 101. That's what we're doing. Whether it's a nonprofit grant funded entity, remember, we will have ownership in these projects that we are creating. So we have a sustainability plan in the future. The value we're providing for people who are interested in investing in Africa is investment-ready projects. That's what we're doing, right? That have been sequenced and thought through and established in the right way. I, I come from an enterprise sales background, so I think that has prepared me to actually develop, to, to develop uh, go-to-market strategies that are bottoms-up and very pragmatic and practical. So one of our audiences is successful founders. And we have this fundraising uh, strategy or, or, or message that is called the 100 Founders Challenge. And we are tapping into the global tech community around the world, people who've exited, liquid founders who sold a company, to invest in us through their philanthropic side, their give back side, because this will also serve their pipeline side down the road. But this is from that pocket. And I can tell you, one of, just one of our, of our funders right now is actually a South African-born founder who sold this company very recently and is based in, in Seattle, in the US. And we have a bunch of other people pipelined. Some of them, you, you, will, you will know their companies. But we are very much in the, in, the, in the process of building this out. We just launched this campaign. We're on our way, man. So that's, sure. all, I, that's all I can say for now. Okay. Sounds good, man. Listen, I'm Mark Karake of the Impact Africa Network. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. And uh, if you guys are interested in... Uh, the goings on in the Nairobi startup ecosystem. Listen to the Chini Amaji podcast. That's underwater podcast. Again, yeah. It's a Chini Amaji podcast covers only Nairobi. So I'm not trying to steal Andile's Africa White Thunder. He's, he's, a, he's a big bro in the podcast game. Listen. But uh, yeah, we listen. focus what's most closer, closest to the ground for us. Listen, in the show notes as a resource will be a link to your podcast because there's no doubt in my mind awesome. that the value you, you're Thanks, producing over there. It. No doubt. No doubt. I want people to know that um, we don't we don't see things the way perhaps other people see things. We we really see things in terms of you're an ally as long as you're moving the needle on a values tip that we can buy into full stop. And there's no doubt in my mind that your podcast is one people should be checking out, no doubt, especially if they want to understand the Kenyan ecosystem that much better. Of course, Vijay, it's always a pleasure having you on the show as well. 
Oh, pleasure, man. And lo- lovely to meet Mark and hope uh, he brings those Silicon Valley dollars to South Africa. Hey, he's already pulling them in. Uh, he's already pulling, he's already <laughs> pulling them in. Kenya, but I'm sure we, we, we'll we, be, need, we'll more, we need more of the yeah. uh, startup gurus who literally say, I want to invest in Africa because I don't need to prove it to anyone. You know what I'm saying? So with that said, uh, I want to thank you all for listening. It's been it's been dope uh, to our African Tech Roundup Village. You know where it's at. If you want to factor in on anything we've discussed, hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at African Roundup, Facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup, or drop us an email. My name is Andine Masugu. Take it easy, Africa.